How many of you know who this person is? Who is that? Justin Thomas. That's right. PJ professional Justin Thomas. Do you know where Justin Thomas is from? That's right. Right here in good old Goshen, Kentucky. In fact, if you go up Highway 42 up towards our house, once you get past the high schools, there's a sign on the right side of the road that says Goshen, Kentucky, home of PJ champion Justin Thomas. A Thomas currently has the most wins of any tour player under 30 years old with 14 wins, one of those wins being a major championship. In fact, he's only one of four players in PGA Tour history to have 14 victories before his 28th birthday, joining Jack Nicholas, Johnny Miller, and Tiger Woods. This is to say, our homeboy, JT, just tell us he is really, really, really good at golf. Well, several months ago, Thomas tweeted a video clip of him completely shanking a three-wood. And this was after him waiting a while for the green to clear so he could go for a par five and two. And I got to tell you, when I saw that video of him absolutely mishitting and shanking a three-wood, you know how that made me feel? It made me feel really, really good. <laughs> You know why? Because it showed me that even the best of golfers, even the best of golfers, they still make mistakes. And you know what? That's kind of encouraging, <laughs> especially to high handicappers such as myself, right? His miss hit. Encouraging. Maybe you've had a similar experience to one else. But you know what? There are also times when the failures of someone should not encourage us, like me with Justin Thomas, but rather their failures should terrify us. This is to say, when we see those with greater ability than ourselves fall in significant ways, the only proper response ought to be healthy fear. You know why? Because if those with greater abilities than ourselves are not capable of preventing such a fall, what makes us think that we can do much better? This morning, our study of 2 Samuel leads us to the well-known story of David and Bathsheba. In faith, in many ways, this passage ought to produce in us a healthy, God-honoring fear. For you know what we have in David? In many ways, we have what you could say is kind of like the Justin Thomas of saints. Yet far greater than mishitting a three-wood, as we're about to see, David sins in very egregious ways. In faith, David's failure should terrify us. 
For here we have the sweet psalmist. Here we have God's anointed king. Here we have one of the greatest saints in Scripture. And what is he doing? He's giving way to great, great sins. John Owen, in his book, Of Temptation, he put it this way. He writes, Even the best of saints left to themselves will quickly appear to be less than men, to be nothing. All our own strength is weakness. All our own wisdom is folly. And he's right. So here's the question I want us to consider this morning, and that is how can we, as God's redeemed people, how can we keep ourselves from falling into the same kind of sins, the same kind of destructive sins as David? As Owen has rightfully said, our own strength is weakness, our own wisdom is folly. So how can we guard ourselves from giving way to such sin? Because, friend, please hear me. Please hear me. No one in this room is immune from committing the same types of sin as David, if not worse. No one. So how can we resist? Well, to the praise of God's great grace, woven within the fabric of this sad tale is a very, very important truth given to us by the Holy Spirit so we could resist falling into the same types of sins as David. And what is that critical truth? Well, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 11. That's page 262 in that paperback Bible in the seat in front of you. What we're going to do is we're just going to slowly make our way through this entire chapter and then draw out some hopefully helpful biblical applications for us today, okay? So to give you the context, the, the last two chapters we have seen David being the king who extends kindness, right, to Mephibosheth. And then to, to the son of a king who helped David, Mephibosheth received it. This other king rejected it. But all this is taking place during the time of war. So notice how our story begins. Follow along with me in your copy of God's Word as I read the first couple of verses. We read this. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. 
And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Let's just pause here for a moment. Do, do you know that David and Bathsheba already knew each other at this point? In fact, in what follows, it is most likely, and the things that have followed, that this was not the first time that they had ever met. You know how we know this? Because of what the author reveals about Bathsheba in verse 3. We all know that Bathsheba's husband was Uriah, right? And, and not to state the obvious, but since Uriah was a valiant warrior, David would have undoubtedly fought alongside Uriah. Now, David's not fighting alongside Uriah now, and we're going to circle back to that in a moment, but they would have fought together. So that would have been one point of contact. But tell me, who is Bathsheba's father? What does the text say? Eliam. You know who he is? He is one of David's 30 mighty men listed in 2 Samuel 23. So another point of contact. So David would have fought alongside her husband, and Bathsheba's dad was one of David's 30 mighty men. You know who Eliam's father is? Ahithophel. You know who Ahithophel is? One of David's chief and most trusted advisors. You can read about him in 2 Samuel 15, 12. So do you see the picture that the author is painting here? Bathsheba is the wife of a fellow soldier of David, the daughter of one of David's 30 mighty men, and the granddaughter of one of David's most trusted advisors. They all ran together. As several commentators have pointed out, David and Bathsheba most assuredly would have known each other and most likely met before. So, so David is on the roof of his palace. He sees Bathsheba from a distance, this beautiful woman, naked. He's indulging his eyes. She's at a distance. He's trying to inquire who she is. He finds out who she is. So what does David do next? Does he, God, I'm sorry, that was wrong of me. Does he confess his sin in turn? No. Look at what he does next in the following verses. We read this in verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house. Now, we reread this one verse, and immediately we have all sorts of questions, don't we? Like, what did David say to Bathsheba? What did she say to him? Was, was she flattered that the king of Israel took notice of her? 
was she really put off by the whole thing? And you know what? The author doesn't answer those questions, does he? In fact, not only does he not answer all the questions we want to know, but notice he moves to the whole ordeal rather quickly, doesn't he? I mean, look at the verbs of, of verse 4. David sent for her, took her in. She then came to him, and he lay with her. Now, some modern readers argue that David raped Bathsheba. I don't think that's the case for a number of reasons. The first is the Bible has a word for rape, and it's not used here. Nor is the biblical definition of rape even depicted in this passage. Now, two chapters later, in 2 Samuel 13, it is. In that chapter, we have a clear description of rape with Ammon and Tamar. He forces himself upon her, and as 2 Samuel 13, 14 states, he violated her. But that's not the description we have with David and Bathsheba. Alexander Abisali is an Old Testament scholar, and several months ago he wrote a very scholarly paper entitled, quote, Was It Rape? The David and Bathsheba Story Reexamined. It's, it's really well done, but um, he's, he interacts heavily in the biblical languages, so it's, it's quite technical, but it's still very helpful. And referring to the verse I just read, 2 Samuel 4, he writes this. He says, The clause, and he lay with her, does not explicitly imply the use of physical force by David in subduing Bathsheba. Surely the language here lacks the physical overpowering attested in Amnon's rape of Tamar. And consequently, Bathsheba is not depicted as crying out during or after the sexual intercourse. And then he says this. Even the argument that the power gap between Bathsheba and David may supply the reason why she does not cry out is insufficient for reading violent subjugation into the context. Therefore, and he's saying, if we're allowing the Bible to define our terms, if we're allowing the Bible to define our terms, it is not a case of biblical rape. But then second, I want you to notice that the text says that Bathsheba came to him. Now, to be sure, the king of Israel had an exorbitant amount of power at that time. But please hear me. He did not have the power to have sex with whomever he pleased. That was sin. And whatever pressures Bathsheba might have felt in God's kingdom, adultery was wrong and sinful. And based on the language of the text of her coming to him, we must conclude that in some way she was complicit in the adultery. Now some might object, oh, well, Aaron, she didn't have a choice with, with King David being so powerful and all. Yes, she did have a choice. It was a hard choice, to be sure, 
But she did have a choice. Bathsheba could have done what Tamar did two chapters later. You know what Tamar did? She looked at the man who was coming upon him, her, and to his face, she said, what you're doing is evil and wrong. That was a hard choice for Tamar to make, but she made it. Bathsheba could have done that, but she didn't. And just by way of application, Christian, I want to just remind all of us that in Christ you are free. And no matter how hard or difficult circumstances might be, you always have the choice to do what is right and honor God, even if it costs you greatly. Now, all this to say, none of this makes David's sin of adultery any less grievous. But if we're going to let the Bible define our understanding of rape and not our contemporary conceptions, which are fluid and changing, then we must conclude, based on the text, that David committed adultery with Bathsheba and not rape. In fact, as we work our way through this chapter, notice how often Bathsheba is referred to as Uriah's wife. She's only called Bathsheba once. Throughout the entire rest of the narrative in the story and beyond, she's always referred to as the wife of Uriah, indicating David took something that didn't belong to him. Now, although the author spares us many of the details that we would want to know about the interaction between David and Bathsheba and what they said and what they didn't say, he does highlight one important fact that is critical to the overall drama of this chapter, and that is how Bathsheba was purifying herself from her menstrual cycle. This must be a really important point because the, the horns are sung. And do you know why the author added this detail? Simply to establish the fact that Bathsheba was not pregnant before David brought her into his house. Do we have a robbery going on here? Is this what's going to happen? All right. Okay. Oh, it stopped. Yay! All right. And we, we sent the Ford engineer out there to check on it, so we're in, we're in good hands. So, uh, all, all this to say, the author includes this fact of her purifying herself, so we would know before David and Bathsheba meet, she's not pregnant. Because look at what happens next in verse 5. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now, I want you just to, to take a step back and consider for a moment what's happening in these opening five verses. Let me ask you, who is David acting like in these opening five verses? David is acting like Adam of old, isn't he? Notice, notice again the verbs that are used. The sequence in these opening five verses follows the sequence of Genesis 3. As David walked on his roof, he saw the woman who was good in appearance. And after having seen something as good, he then took her into his house. Faith, this is, this is Genesis 3 all over again. This is another fall. And think about how this fits into the overall story of the Bible. 
Since Genesis 3.15, we've been looking for someone who would crush the seed of the serpent. We've been looking for someone from the, an offspring of Eve. And as we've been working our way through, we think that it is going to be David as he's God's true anointed king. Yet here we see another fall. Like Adam, David sinned in relation to a woman. Yet whereas Adam's sin was spiritual adultery, David's was literal adultery. And like Adam's sin, David's sin involved tasting forbidden fruit. In fact, this echo back to Genesis 3 is the reason why the author puts the blame at David's feet. Though Bathsheba, Bathsheba did commit adultery, David was the one taking forbidden fruit. And lest we have any doubt that David is following Adam's footsteps, look at what he does next. After he sins, just like Adam, he tries to cover it up. Look at verses 6 and 8. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Could you... Could you imagine how that conversation went? How all of a sudden this guy just gets randomly called in to talk to King David. So then verse 8. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him with a present from the king. You see what, what David's trying to get Uriah to do is simply this. He's like, go down, wash your feet, get a shower, get supper, and have sex with your wife. That's, that's what David is wanting Uriah to do so that the pregnancy would be covered. But notice what Uriah does there in verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark of Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? And then notice what he says here. As you live, David, and your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Uriah is being more faithful and honoring to God than David here. He's displaying greater devotion I'm going to talk more about this in a moment, but I want you to see this frustrates David. So what does David do next? He tries to get Uriah intoxicated. Surely then he would go home and have sex with his wife. Let's look at verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow, and I will send you back. Tell me, do you not think Uriah at this point realizes something's not right? Surely he, and also as we're going to see Joab, 
David thinks he's got this all under control. No one knows what's going on here. I'm keeping it all a secret. Uriah's no fool. So notice, he's no fool, but he is a faithful follower of Yahweh because notice, so Uriah remained in Jerusalem the next day, the day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank. Have another, Uriah, on the house. Have another, Uriah. So that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went on to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. I am sure David is like, come on! What more must I do? Murder. And that's exactly what happens next. Look at the following verses. And just, just think about it. David sinned. He concealed it. He tried to cover it. That's not working. And now this leads him to murdering an innocent man. And as we see, not just one man, but other men lost their lives in this scheme to cover up his sin. Look at verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of who? Again, he's not thinking. And the letter he wrote set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Now, if you were Joab, you'd be okay. All right. Notice verse 16. Joab follows through. As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there was valiant men from the other side. And the men of the city came out and they fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when he had finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubbasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say to your servant Uriah the Hittite, then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is it also. This is revealing everyone who knows anything about combat, this was a dumb move. Why would you do that? Well, we're doing it, David, to cover your sin. Verse 22, so the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field. We drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archer shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead awful. And now notice David's response. So David said to the messenger, ah, oh, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. He's saying, uh, Joab, the, these things happen. 
Verse 25, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And now we hear God's thought on the whole matter. And this is the most important line in the entire chapter. And it's this. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. About eight years ago, my wife had a lengthy conversation with an acquaintance of ours who had recently filed for divorce from his wife. The man, he professed to be a Christian. In fact, he and his wife both faithfully attended a local church. Yet when my wife Stephanie asked him why he wanted to divorce his wife, you know what he said? He said, well, she doesn't make me happy anymore, and I know that God wants me to be happy. Tell me, how would you respond if someone said that to you? You know what my wife said? She said, um, you're right. God does want you to be happy, but not in your circumstances, but in the Lord. And then she said, in a gracious way, she said, greater than your personal happiness, God wants you to be holy and to find your greatest joy in him and his commands, not the circumstances of your marriage. And then as they continued to dialogue, she showed him from the Bible how this professing Christian had no grounds, biblical grounds, for divorce. And you know what? After she showed him this, you know what he said? He agreed. He's like, you're right. I do not have biblical grounds for divorce. Yet he was still determined to divorce his wife. And puzzled, my wife asked, okay, she's like, how can you go forward and divorce your wife knowing full well that it would be, in, be sin? You know what he said to Stephanie? He said these words, and I quote, well, David committed adultery with Bathsheba, yet he was a man after God's own heart, so, so I'm okay. In other words, this acquaintance of ours was completely dismissive of his sin. He didn't think his willful sin mattered that much to God, and he used David as proof. Now, there, <laughs> there are all sorts of problems with this line of reasoning, but you know what is perhaps the greatest problem with this kind of thinking? It ignores the final verse of 2 Samuel 11. Faith, there are many features to the story I just read that we could give our time and attention to. In fact, there are many ways we could talk about this story and, and what we could emphasize. However, I believe it is very important that we allow the text to dictate our emphasis and focus. And what this passage clearly stresses is this truth, and that is 
sin displeases the Lord. Sin displeases the Lord. This, I want to argue, is the life-giving truth that can keep us from falling into the same types of sins as David. Faith, we need to sear this on our consciences and our hearts. My sin, your sin, every time we engage in sin, our sin displeases the Lord. Now, am I saying that a Christian can act in such a way that the Lord is displeased with him or her? Yes. I mean, if David's sin did not displease the Lord, what kind of God would he be? Can you imagine God saying to David, David, look, hey, I know you took another man's wife, you committed adultery, and then you covered up the whole sin thing by repeatedly lying, and you killed another man. But you know what, David? You're my child, and it's all good. I smile at you. What? What kind of message does that send to Bathsheba? What kind of message does that send to Joab? Indeed, what kind of message does that send to the other wives whose husbands were killed in the cover-up, as verse 24 makes clear? You're telling me David does this great sin, and all he ever does, 24 hours a day, is smile with warm approval of David? What kind of God is that? Faith, please hear me. While it is certainly true, and man, we praise the Lord for this, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, that His grace is greater than all our sin, and that He has set His eternal affection upon us, and that there's nothing, nothing that can separate us from the love of God. While all that is true, and we praise the Lord for these truths, let us not be so unbiblical in our thinking and deceive ourselves to believe that there is nothing we do that can please or displease the Lord. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Literally, the text reads, the thing David had done was evil in the Lord's sight. Look, there, there is nothing, nothing that can stop me from loving my children. Nothing. but that does not mean I won't be grieved if they commit sin or disobedience. The times as a youth when I was growing up and I disobeyed my parents, I knew my father loved me and he would take a bullet from me, but I know when I disobeyed, it, it grieved him and he was not pleased with me. Did he love me? Yes. Christian, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, but that does not mean the Lord will not be displeased by your sin. Can I ask, do you believe that? We, we talk about frequently here at Faith that we need to bring God into our thoughts. And 
I want to argue that two situations where God is most often not in our thoughts is when we're about to give way to sin and when it seems that life's circumstances are overwhelming. Faith, let us be reminded in both situations that the Lord is at hand, both as a comfort and as a deterrent from doing something that would displease him. And what I want to do this morning is to learn from David's failure. There are four actions David failed to take that led to his grievous sin. And my prayer is that we would be found faithful taking these necessary steps and so keep ourselves from sin. Here's the first action we need to take that David failed to take. And the first is this. Guard your heart. Let's look at it again at the first two verses here. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. If, if you happen to go out to any place where music is played, then you most likely have heard most of, if not all, of the Ed Sheeran song, Bad Habits. And in many ways, the song captures the lure and destruction of sexual sin. Listen to the lyrics of the second verse. He writes this, or he sings it rather, Every pure intention ends when the good times start. And is this not the thrust of all sexual sin? Falling over everything to reach the first time spark. It started under neon lights, then it all got dark. I only know how to go too far. And the chorus, my bad habits lead to you. Faith, I want you to see that there's a bad habit that led to David's sin with Bathsheba. And you know what it was? It was the bad habit of him giving free reign to lustful desires for women. What you have to understand is that David's sin with Bathsheba did not begin in chapter 11. No, as we've seen throughout our study of 1 and 2 Samuel, David has failed to keep his lust for women under control. He has not guarded his heart. You see, there were a million moments of concealed and unconfessed sin that led to this very moment. He had allowed a pattern of raging lust to burn wildly in his heart prior to this point. And faith, I think there's, it's appropriate for us to ask ourselves about our own hearts. Is there a sin in your own heart that you're allowing to run free? What bad secret habits are you cultivating? To put it another way, how proactively are you guarding your heart from sin? If 
faith, you know what this chapter uh, in many ways is? It's a living illustration of James 1, 14 through 15. This episode in David's life, it illustrates how sin works. Listen to what James writes. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Ding, 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 that's David. Then desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth, what's that word? Death. That's David. Listen to me. Don't let it be you. And you keep that from happening by guarding and examining your heart, keeping a track on your desires. But then second, David failed in this way, and we ought to do, we ought to succeed in this, and that is make no provision for the flesh. Verse 3, and David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Uh, Charles Swindoll tells the story of a little boy whom his father told him to not go swimming in the pond after school. He says, on your way home from school, I don't want you to go swimming. And the boy's like, okay, right away, Dad. Well, that evening, the little boy came home holding a wet bathing suit in his hand. And his father looked at me and said, uh, son, uh, where have you been? And the boy's like, well, Dad, I was swimming in the pond. And the father said, well, didn't I tell you not to go swimming there? Yes, sir, the boy answered. He said, well, then why did you go swimming? He said, well, Dad, I had my bathing suit with me, and I couldn't resist the temptation. Well, the father asked, why did you take your bathing suit with you? The boy said, so I'd be prepared to swim just in case I was tempted. <laughs> that boy was making provision for his sin. Faith, we see the same thing with David. Notice the whole chapter begins with the clear message that David should not be at home. He should not be lounging around late in the afternoon sleeping sleeping in, then going up. Where should David be? At war. Think for a moment of all the ways, though, David set himself up for sin. First, as we talked about it, he abdicated his responsibility to go out to war. He was idle. Second, he went on top of his roof. And I don't know if you know this or not, but in the Bible, nothing good ever happens when a king takes a stroll on the top of his palace roof. Just ask Nebuchadnezzar. Third, he allowed his eyes to continue to gaze upon a naked woman. Then fourth, instead of turning away, what did he do? He inquired about her. And after inquiring about her, he sent for her. And I, and I wonder, after he sent to get her, what David had planned to say to Bathsheba when he saw her. He did not say, hey, have sex with me. No. I wonder how he carefully and subtly moved the conversation and interaction to a place where their passions took over. 
You know what David is doing? David was bringing his swimming suit with him. Faith for us to make no provision for the flesh is to avoid those situations and circumstances that would tempt us to sin. And you know what? Following God's command in Romans 13, 14, which clearly states, make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust, I need to tell you, obeying that command, it might inconvenience you. Indeed, you know what? You might even be ridiculed and made fun of. But I promise you, such ridicule is well worth the avoidance of the devastating effects of sin. And can I, can I ask, is, is there any area in your life you're actually making provision for the flesh? Maybe with a co-worker of the opposite sex? Or maybe what you're choosing to view on your phone or computer? And faith, please, please hear me. You need to know, we need to know, and follow the Bible's solution to lust. And please hear me, the biblical solution to lust is not to fight it. It's to flee it. Don't miss this. If you do not flee sexual temptation, you will fail. If you linger, you will lust. The Bible never says that you should stand and fight against sexual passions. It never says to stay and pray about it. No, you know what the Bible repeatedly says in the New Testament? Flee! Flee immorality, 1 Corinthians 6. Flee youthful passions, 2 Timothy 2. We Follow God in honoring his commands by fleeing sexual temptation. Third thing I want to draw out that we ought to do, that David didn't do, is to heed God's warning. Notice what Uriah says to David. Uriah isn't dumb. His words were a rebuke and a warning to David. And focus there on verse 11. Where Uriah said to David, having not gone home to enjoy his, a warm bed, his wife, food. He says, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my Lord and Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Implied, why aren't you? <laughs> he then says, Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? And then notice, he doesn't say, As the Lord lives. Who does he say? As you live and your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Two observations I just want to highlight. First, though it's more oblique than Nathan's, Uriah's response to David's question was a rebuke of David's unkingly behavior. More than that, notice how Uriah ended the whole conversation with an oath on David's life. Uriah was saying, even if it cost David's life, he would not do what David encouraged him to do. So David's like, okay, I'm going to take yours. But these words here was an act of grace in David's life. And he should have known full well, I should not be here. I should not have done that. I should have been with my men. 
event. He refused to heed this warning, and instead of confessing his sin, he took things to the next level and had Uriah killed. Second, you need to observe how sin makes you stupid. Okay? Notice David sent Uriah's death warrant with who? Uriah. I mean, might not Uriah open the letter and find out what he was carrying? Either David had thought of this possibility, which meant he was being foolish, or he had thought of it and dismissed it, which would have meant he was acting foolish. Peter Lightheart, he makes this great and insightful observation. He writes this. He says, logic is not morally neutral. Sinners not only... Sinners are not only immoral, but stupid. And if a leader wants to retain his ingenuity, he should look to his integrity. Finally, the last thing that David failed to do was cultivate thanksgiving to the Lord. Now, we're going to get into this in more detail next week when we look at chapter 12, but I just want us just for a few moments to look at the first couple verses of chapter 12. Okay? First, notice in chapter 11, messengers are being sent. David's sending to get Bathsheba. He's sending messengers to Joab. Joab sending messengers back to Uriah. Sending back. The messengers are being sent all over the place. Notice what God does in chapter 12. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there's a parable, there were two men in a certain city the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then verse 5, and then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. Now, we're going to get more detail next week. But I want you to notice, according to the prophet Nathan, through this parable, you know what was a major contributing factor to David's demise? An ungrateful heart. Does this not come through crystal clear in the parable of the rich man who had everything, was given so much, and what does the rich man do? He steals from the poor man. Think of all that God had blessed David with. Think of all the great promises and provisions God had given to David, especially in 2 Samuel 7. Yet in spite of the ways that God has poured out his blessings on David, he sins in this way. David was ungrateful. Faith, this is why thanksgiving is so important to the Christian life. 
And it's the discipline that needs to be cultivated and practiced on a regular basis. This is also why self-pity and a sense of entitlement are so offensive to our God. Christian, how active are you at cultivating thanksgiving to the Lord? How often do you practice it? I promise you this. Friend, the weeds of lust do not thrive in the soil of thankful, worshiping, believing hearts. God pours out his steadfast love and faithfulness to us thousands of times each day. May we not be so self-focused and self-absorbed to miss these gifts of blessing. Indeed, I just want to make one application here to the married men. Married men, as we're talking about living lives that honor him and not giving away to sin, do you realize that you are commanded to delight and be thankful for your wife? Are you not commanded to rejoice in the wife of your youth, as Proverbs 5 commands? Christian married men, cultivate thankfulness to the Lord for your wife. Now, no woman is perfect. All are sinners. But Christian married man, when was the last time you praised God for the many ways you were blessed by your wife? And I'm not referring simply to the sexual aspect of your marriage. What do you appreciate about her? What do you enjoy about her? What can you give thanks to God for about her? And you know what? After you think about those things, go tell her. <laughs> to all the Christians here, the greatest blessing we are to give thanks to God for is His Son. Amen? His Son who died for sinful people like you and me. Because you know what? In many of us, in many ways, according to Jesus, all of us are like David. We all are sinful people who have committed adultery in our hearts. We are people, all of us here in this room, who have lied in countless ways to cover our sin. And like David, we all, whether we acknowledge it or not, we have harmed others with our secret sins. So what do we do with our sin? Well, the Apostle John tells us, does he not? We are not to conceal and hide it. No, we are to bring it into the light, confess it to God, and to receive his forgiveness. Amen? And I, and I close with this. Please hear me. And you know why we are to do this? Why we are to bring our sin into the light and confess it to the Lord and to receive his forgiveness? We're to do it because while sin does in fact displease the Lord, a contrite and lowly heart makes him smile. For what does Psalm 51, 17 say? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a contrite heart, O oh God. You will not despise. Sin displeases the Lord, confessing our sin and going to Christ to receive forgiveness 
God will not despise. Translation, he smiles. When we sin, may we be such people, knowing that God delights to forgive and smiles upon those who confess their sins rather than concealing it. Amen? Let's pray.